some things in life are bad They can really make you mad Other things just make you swear and curse When you're chewing on life's gristle That grumble, give a whistle And this'll help things turn out for the best And always look on the bright side of life Welcome back to The White Bikini. My name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Isley-Banton. How are you, Nick? Oh, Marie, I'm doing great. Thank you for that wonderful welcome. Heading into the big 4th of July long weekend. I can't believe July is here. Yay, fireworks and hot dogs. All right, I'm sensing a lack of enthusiasm, so I will stop. You mean enthusiasms? Enthusiasms. Today on part three, which is becoming five episodes, we are still talking about the history of music in Philadelphia, but I felt that we really had to explore the importance of DJs in Philadelphia music history. Any thoughts, Nick? I don't know if you were a DJ person. I don't think when you were coming up, you listened to radio. Uh, actually, I did. I, I did because it was one of the only forms of entertainment that we had available. So I did listen to a fair amount of radio. Um, so, yes, uh, I didn't know that's what the person on the radio was called necessarily, the DJ. Um, I just understood it as the person on the radio. But um, my, my experience of like what a DJ is, especially within the confines of like hip hop, that's something that came about uh, when I was a teenager, I'd say. Well, for me, I'm more focused on the personalities that drove the Philadelphia music industry. When I was growing up, the DJ, when you turned it on, you knew who was on, what time they were on, and the personality was very a part of the whole experience, which I don't think you had that, or I could be wrong. Uh- Radio personalities. And so I'll make the distinction between DJs and radio personalities. You know, a DJ... Wait, wait, wait. Are you correcting me? Yes, I am. I am, Murray. Isn't that awesome? So, yes, you can have a radio personality that's a DJ, and you can just have radio personalities that are just sort of standalone entities that, you know, are just there, like a Howard Stern type of thing. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the era in which the DJ was a personality and you listen to the DJ not only for the music or the records that they were playing but you want to hear what they had to say about those records and how they said it and the connections that they would make between the music and the history and all that I'm assuming that's where we're going right I don't know you tell me you're obviously running everything well you know settle down little kid DJs who play music on the radio Mm -hmm. have had a key role in shaping Philadelphia music will taste this since the 1950s. They reflected national and local music trends. They exposed audiences to new music and in some cases produced records and managed artists. Many Philadelphia DJs became celebrities, which is what you're talking about, that personality driven, actively engaged and influenced this local music scene. I think this is a little before your cognitive memories. Right, right. Conscious, yes, only before I was conscious and aware, but I, I do understand what you described. Go on. DJs first achieved achieved popularity on AM radio, which predominated in the 1950s and 60s. And I'm going to say even into the 1970s, because I remember even as a young girl being hyped about turning on what 4AM's 
for the four AM stations that rolled Philadelphia Airways was WIBG, WFIL, and the two prominent African American stations, WDAS and WHAT. So for me, it was that experience. I would turn it on, I would listen. It was I was hyped about the music. But when television came into widespread use, the audience for this type of program largely abandoned radio for TV. So in response, radio stations began exactly what you were saying, even though I fought with you, offering a new type of entertainment by having their announcers play records on the air. So that's first they were really personalities and then they started playing music. So in the late 1960s, a new kind of DJ emerged with the rise of FM radio. And I do remember this because I kind of remember bopping along to AM radio, but by the mid 1970s, we were turning on what was considered so radical then. It was considered underground radio. Three minute pop songs, you know, the DJ patter of AM radio became less, you know what it is? I think people's tastes were elevating, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, you listen to a broadcast on AM radio and you listen to a broadcast on FM radio. It's a completely different world. Like AM just sounds like a man screaming at the bottom of a well. So even just the medium itself caused the art form to change. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and even now, like, you know, I listen to KYW. It's not even AM anymore. I think, first of all, the the nation wants to get rid of AM radio, which I'm against just for sentimental reasons. But when is the last time you turned on AM radio? I can't tell. I, you know what? I, I won't say it's it's not that long ago. So sometimes when I do like a road trip and I wanted to listen to um, a Phillies game or something like that, uh, I would turn on AM radio and, and certainly for KYW because the signal just travels that much farther. But I can't say that I'd have had to because like all the things that I would want to listen to, like in a car, if I'm in a long drive, I can get it sounding significantly better, you know, on an FM channel. So what started to happen is to get away from what they called the patter of AM radio in favor of a less commercial approach with DJs who spoke in a low-key conversational style and played longer music selections in what at the time was the emerging progressive rock style. And I do remember that probably in high school, turning on WIOQ, everything they talked very slowly they wouldn't just play the top five hits from i'm just gonna say fleetwood mac they would go to what old school like the b-side but there was also more conversation about the music it wasn't so commercial and at the time after the late you know after the rise of the hippies and even into the 70s people wanted a little more you know elevated And I think for me, the difference comes down to, you know, there's the DJ that's there to hype the channel. There's a DJ that's there to, you know, pretty much to hype the commercials. I mean, like, that's kind of what they do. And then there are the DJs that are there to hype the music. And I think what we're relating to primarily are the DJs that existed in a time and in a space where it was about the music and it was about the relationship and the history of the music and the relevance of the songs. And you felt that they had this broad encyclopedic knowledge about what music was about and how a particular song uh, would fit in a particular genre and how that genre would fit in, a, in the history of music. 
or you know or, or super genre of music and you learn so much from them I, I think that's that's the DJ that I can remember as a little kid when I listened to the radio where this is how this Beatles song is relevant because it was recorded in this studio on this date by this super producer and this song you know charted for this number of weeks I mean it was a very interesting experience and you don't get that anymore it's just guys screaming at the top of their voices you know with weird sound effects and i think for me the am radio is gonna was an experience which i'm stealing from you it was like that minstrel show they were there to entertain and scream but i think by the late 60s early 1970s the older baby boomers were taking over radio and they didn't want that shock jock type of thing completely agree they wanted sophistication Yes, yes. And, and I'm not saying there's nothing against the shock jock. There is, I think there's enough, there are enough seats at the table for everyone to feel satisfied when they turn on that radio and have that experience. And if that's what you want, good for you. I'm happy to hear, I'm happy for that. But it's when, and I think you would agree, that's when the shock jock started to replace the professors, if you will, for want of a better word, those those DJs that had this wide and deep profes- uh, professorial understanding of music and history. And you felt that when you listened to the radio, you were learning about why that song was relevant, um, why that song was relevant and and why that song had a special place in history, for instance. Um, and, and those are two vastly different experiences. You know, and they, as I said, they had DJs who spoke in low key conversational they played longer rock styles. FM radio had a higher fidelity than AM and was better suited to this new kind of programming. And I grew up in an era, and you somewhat did, AM radio was always staticky when FM mm-hmm. came on. And at the time, we, other than throwing an album on, which I have full disclosure was a pain, you just kind of pressed the button and turned it on. And you were always beholden because at, t- at that time, you really couldn't listen to music over and over again like you can now. Right. And when you say press the button, I want to go even before that, before like the advent of digital FM to the days of dial FM, where basically your job was to be like a, you know, like a surgeon and you'd grab that dial and you'd rotate it and you'd listen until you could get, you know, you'd go all the way to the left a little bit and all the way to the right a little bit until you could get all the static out of the broadcast. And sometimes you would have to maybe like move the radio. You would have to angle it in the room because there's that one part in your room that gets good signals. And then and then the rest of the, the room is just like a static, you know, a wall of static. So it's funny to think about those days, but they really weren't all that long ago. You don't think so? I don't think so. It, it really wasn't that long ago that if you wanted to listen to music, it involved having these fine motor skills and the ability to <laughs> and the ability to like take a take a radio antenna try to point it in the one place in your room or wherever you are that you would get the clearest possible signal those days were not that long ago it's within a generation all right nick it really is i mean 20 years ago we're talking about the turn of the century you, you gotta remember that it wasn't that long ago that uh broadcast tv was still a thing like people were still receiving local broadcast news using rabbit ears so it's within a generation it feels i mean so much has happened in yeah. the last 20 years but 
I don't I think that the changeover, for instance, for broadcast TV was around 2006, 2007, 2009, somewhere in that window. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I remember saying to you years ago, I will never shop on Amazon. I shop on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I'll never stream TV. All I do now is I haven't turned a TV on in my house in 10 years. I'd stream everything on an iPad. Mm-hmm. So over time, AM stations largely abandoned music in talk of news and talk formats, leaving the DJs who played music mostly to FM bands. FM radio became more commercial in the 1970s as the music and radio industries became big business. And this is a crucial part of the conversation because the next aspect when we're going to have a surprise guest. Music became an industry and it wasn't always. It was by the late 1970s when people began to realize they could really make a lot of money in this rock and roll thing. And let me just stipulate that it was an industry for the producers, for the label. Yes, it wasn't really an industry for the producers, for the artists per se, with save a few really... um, like Elvis Presley, yes. Frank Sinatra, exactly. the because, Beatles. Yeah, because the record companies were the ones eating the vast lion's share of the profits. So it wasn't until you had these sort of independently famous artists that weren't in sort of, the, you know, because I think they're, correct me if I'm wrong, the music industry kind of ran like uh, Hollywood where the, the production companies and the studios kind of had like this stable of artists and the, they would just rotate them, you know, one after the other, one after the other. And so they were employees. Even if they were stars, they were still just employees of these record companies. And the record companies would dictate their lives, what they wore, where they went, how they sang, how they, how they would sing, what they would sing and everything like that. So the idea of like the independent rock star that's vying for dominance in the marketplace, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Well, even, you know, it kind of goes in unison with the minstrel shows, which is the Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, those old school Johnny Mathis, those vocalists, those entertainers. But by the mid to late 1960s, as we've discussed, you know, the Beatles came into town, but the Beatles at the time were still wearing ties and suits. But, you know, within a couple years, the, the hippie movement took over that radical movement, the Grateful Dead, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. And at that point, these guys took and ladies took the charge of their careers. And those companies who really started making money off them really couldn't control them any longer. Yep. Yep. And I think that's that's where honestly, I think that's where some of the greatest creativity has come from when you had organizations in these or groups within these record companies essentially dictating create you know what creativity was and and let me be fair i mean the stuff that motown did was pretty remarkable they ran it they ran it like a production line in terms of hits so it's not that it can't be done but it's i think most musicians most music historians would agree that it's when these artists were given um greater independence that's when you started to see the music becoming much more sophisticated much more thoughtful because before that it was just it was just this sort of sugary bubblegum earworm that you'd hear on the radio between commercials am i wrong well, no but i also think it was a form of slavery well i mean l- let's be careful with that word it was a form of exploitation um for yeah. sure it was definitely a form of exploitation you know there is a motel film called standing in the shadows of motown and it's about all of the motown 
studio musicians and what they went through in terms of building up that music, but they never really got paid out because Barry Gordy was at the top of that and <laughs> the Diana Ross, and I don't want to speak out of turn, but everyone wants a piece of the pie and the pie just started getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, and it's uh, the, the model I would compare to, you use the word slavery, um, it was it was actually very similar to um, any other form of exploitation, human exploitation, whether in fact we're talking about you know the plantation system in the United States and or the serfdom in in Europe, where the the lords, the masters, had all the you know gained all the profit, all the resources, and you know the people at the bottom just had enough to survive. And so it's not that far removed from that ideology where Bart, Barry Gordy, for instance, we're going to use him since you know I think he's relevant to the conversation, felt perfectly reasonable. It's my company, it's my investment. These people are essentially my musicians. Why should I not reap 80, 70 percent, you know, whatever the actual ratio was of the profits and just give them enough. I mean, they're my employees. This is the ethos of capitalism, where the where the CEO makes 300 percent that of the average worker. And, and so that that's the model. But by the late 1970s, the artists were were starting to push back. And also because they were I'm going to use the example of standing in the shadows of Motown most of these bands also were not dependent on studio musicians. Standing in the Shadows of Motown is based on the Funk Brothers, who were the hit makers. They were the studio musicians. But by the mid to late 1970s, people were getting away. The bands were the studio musicians. Not that they didn't have them, but I'm going to use the Rolling Stones as an example. You had Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. They had their own drummer. They didn't need all of those outlying people because they were true creative artists where the decade before that they were depending on so many people, you know, the Barry Gordy, those people didn't make that money. But in the late 1970s, music became, I think, much more creative. I would and agree with that, that. I would absolutely agree with that. at that point, I'm just going to think of like a Fleetwood Mac. They were the musicians. So at that point, the deals they were cutting were getting bigger and bigger. And those Barry Gordy types in the music industry really had to kind of you know, accommodate them because they needed them and they were making more and more money. Right. I completely agree with you because it wasn't simply just, you know, having the studio musicians. You had the studio composers, the people that actually wrote the songs and the and the, the studio lyricists, you know, the people who actually wrote the lyrics to those songs. And so basically like a guy like Barry Gordy would just have to go out, find a pretty face with a good voice and make them a star. And then, as you said, by the 1970s, it was a much more sophisticated environment where people were coming to the table, they were coming to the musicians, and they knew how to play their instruments. They knew how to write their own songs. They knew how to compose and, you know, in some cases, produce their own music. And so the need for Barry Gordy slowly evaporated. And, you know, it just didn't really go away. It just became a different form of exploitation. But but yes, you know, I, I completely agree with what you're describing. And they own their own brand. That's pretty much what happened. Yes. You know, it was a Pamela Anderson famously said, you know, you don't own your image. You only learn to manage it. Or Pamela. Or Pam. As the market became increasingly competitive, this exactly this time, stations frequently changed ownerships and formats. While DJs jumped from station to station in a constantly changing environment, federal deregulation of the industry right here, beginning in the 1980s, led to concentration of multiple local stations in the hands of a few large media conglomerates 
further solidifying the corporate approach to radio and let's be honest, rock and roll music. Yes, yes, and that wasn't music. That wasn't an accident. People, people are saying, well, you know, how is it that it's you know Sinclair Broadcasting and Time Warner Studios owns these record, these radio stations, these local stations. That wasn't an accident. That was absolutely intended. It's it, capitalism. It's capitalism. It is capitalism. And it's funny that the capitalists in many ways are the ones who hate capitalism the most. It's survival of the fittest. And they are the fittest. I wanted to go over what I think are three prominent DJs. I didn't include a woman and I do apologize. It was more of I wanted to pick very big personalities. Mm-hmm. And the first on the list for me is Georgie Wood. Okay, you're gonna have to tell me about Georgie. Let's let's have let's have Professor Time with our famous lecturer, Professor White. Do you even know who he is? No, but you're gonna tell me. You don't know who Georgie Woods is? No. George Woods, my memory of him is he was on WDAS. I didn't listen to the station frequently, but I remember it was the first time for me that there was a political force in the Philadelphia market. George Woods marched in Selma, Alabama with Dr. King. I want to get right into his politics because I was fascinated by this. He helped charter 21 buses to take Philadelphians to Dr. King's March on Washington in 1963. Known on the radio as the guy with the goods, Mr. Woods came to Philadelphia from New York in 1953 and used the airways of WDAS and WHAT to bring the city emerging talents like The Temptations and Michael Jackson. I remember his voice. It was very calm and very sexy, but I do remember he was very political and that was that again is kind of that end of that minstrel show is that fair yes because you had these um, voices these black voices that could speak their truth that could speak about the experience and the struggles certainly by the 1960s because you know I, not to oversimplify it but black people on tv black men were to be seen and not heard but he was calm not that he wasn't radical but i just remember he he was a gentleman right That's the word I'm going to use. In the 1960s, he would sometimes stop the music for hours on WDAS to talk about civil rights and the work of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And at the time, that was unheard of. And I do remember as he morphed, you know, the 60s turned into the 70s. And even in the early 80s, it became more about the dance music. And he was an advocate. And I picked these three because George Woods built careers with the temptations of Michael Jackson, because at the time, these artists, even Michael Jackson, it's hard to believe now, they went from city to city and these personalities were important because they would play the record. Yes, I, I do remember that. I do remember that the artists had to make the rounds and they'd build up a relationship with the local DJs. And that's where I think the importance of Philadelphia comes in because I do believe, especially George Woods, built the careers of many important people because these guys were coming into town building talking building up the city and again i i'm sure he believed in the music but at the same time it always goes back to that sense of community they came to philadelphia they visited they built those relationships and then they would play the music and help elevate many important stars i do remember the artists um coming in and I guess, I don't know if there are any stations that do, I don't, is there a station that still does that other than maybe, uh, what's the station by Penn? WXPN. WXPN. I think, is it other than WXPN, is there 
Are there any other stations in the Philadelphia area where local artists or international artists for that matter come in, the DJ actually has a conversation with them and they discuss the album? I just, that's not a thing anymore. Am I, am I mistaken with that? I don't know that it's not a thing, but I think that we've kind of evolved out of that. Is that fair? Well, I guess maybe it's, maybe it's just changed to a different medium. Maybe yes. that's what, you know, for instance, I think rather than having those conversations on the air, they're now podcasts. They're podcasts. It's social media. Full disclosure, I'm a big Michael Smirconish fan. You know that. I pay to listen to him. So as more and more people left radio, a lot of people can't afford to pay for serious radio. There's so many avenues to build your own brand now. And definitely social media is one of them. Completely agree. You don't need that middleman. You can just go on and say, hey, this, you know, my new CD, whatever they call it now. Most no one even talks about CDs anymore. I know there is an advent and the surge of interest in vinyl, but most people say go on Apple Music now and stream it. That's how the music has changed or the industry or the, the, the medium, the experience of the medium has changed. Next on my list and probably other than we're staying in the genre of music, but for me, other than the local talk show hosts from uh, WWDB in the late 1980s to early 90s, to me, the most influential disc jockey that I ever grew up with was Ed Shockey. Ed Shockey burst into the radio scene. Again, Temple's radio station. Again, that's a whole other conversation at the time. Temple and Penn, their radio stations were very important locally. Agreed. If you were on campus, I worked at a radio station when I was in college for Delaware County Community College. Granted, it only went out into the lobby, but guess what? We thought we were changing the world. You can make fun of me now. Nope. There are plenty of things for me to make fun of you over. That is definitely not one of them. I was the program director. Hey, now. Hey, now. 1985. Woo, woo. First, Ed Chalky did major in math, and his first program was the Bright Lights of Broadway, which he played Broadway music show. But what happened was he came to an MMR in the 1970s. He rose to fame, but his importance in my experience and memory is he helped introduce to the Philadelphia market the music of Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and yes. And I do remember listening to Ed Chalky probably my late junior high, early high school years, and Billy Joel, Bruce, Yes, they were visiting the studio. He kept building them up and they publicly have had articles about it. So Ed Chalky really for those three groups and they do hold an affinity to Philadelphia. And I do remember going to concerts back in the day and these people would, Ed Chalky would come out, Ed Chalky introduced them. And it was that sense of community that when Ed came out, people knew who he was and people would go crazy. And it's it's all of that it's like we had one place to go to communicate together. Yes, and, and it definitely adds to the sense of community, which I think ultimately is what this is all about. Correct. And how important Philadelphia was to building bigger brands. Completely agree. He continued promoting the music of soon-to-be stars when he worked at WRQ in the 1980s. You know, he worked at WRQ in the 1970s and 1980s. And back when Bruce Springsteen was getting started, he used to crash on Ed Chalky's sofa, which was redubbed the Bruce Springsteen Memorial Couch, you know, after Springsteen made it big. Now, granted to me and you and I've talked about this personally, we agree that we feel that there was a shift in this country around 1986. Agreed. Ed Shockey switched to working at WYSP in 1986 and then to WMGK in 2002. 
But really by 2000 and I, I even feel by the mid 1980s and maybe this is my personal experience. I know that when I first heard Walk This Way with Aerosmith and Run DMC, I thought something different is happening here. And I felt like there was like a switch went off. And even though these groups, meaning Springsteen, Billy Joel, yes, their peak original original music really kind of, I think, peaked by 1990s. They still tour, but they're still touring on their old hits. And there's nothing wrong with that. Legacy touring is fine with me. Absolutely. There's there is an audience for people. There's an audience for musicians to go and perform their greatest hits. And people don't necessarily want to hear the new experimental song. They want to hear you know the songs that they used to sing to as younger people and they want to and they're willing to spend hundreds of dollars to go to those concerts and hear old musicians play old songs and, and i'm not i don't mean that uh pejoratively i'm just saying there is absolutely a market for that and and i mean that's what the eagles you know the eagles the rolling stones all those bands, that's what they do. They go and they make, you know, middle-aged people happy. Ed Shockey unfortunately died in 2004 at the age of only 55. Wow. And he, I know. I remember when he, it was a big deal. It was, it was the end of an era. It was that community. It was that building brands. It was turning on Ed Shockey and he told you about Billy Joel. And, you know, it's funny. We're talking about these old guys. You know, Billy Joel was just in town uh, two weeks ago, a week ago with Stevie Nicks. Again, that reference. I saw a video on Instagram where the crowd sang to Billy Joel one of his fa- his most popular songs is Piano Man. And he didn't even have to sing the crowd because it's that history in Philadelphia that I know is gone, but when I saw it, it kind of warmed up my heart. Billy Joel is retiring, but just for a brief moment, we could just remember the glory days. You know, it's funny you say that. I, I was listening to an artist uh, describe performing nowadays because he's been in this, you know, this was, I think this was ludicrous. And I, somehow it came up on, on my, one of my YouTube feeds. And it was very interesting because he says now people pay to go to his concerts to sing his songs. Yeah. And, and you know what? But again, it's that sense of community. Yeah. Yeah. That basically like, you know, for some of these songs, all he does, he stands on stage. He holds the microphone out towards the audience and they sing. And he's like, wow, these people are paying me to come to my concert to sing my songs. And but you're right. That's that's where it all comes. It, that's where it all dovetails. And Bruce Springsteen said after Ed Shockey passed away that Ed Shockey was the kind of DJ whose passion was the lifeblood for artists like myself. Ed was the true DJ, a true rock and roll fan, and the very spirit of the music he loved. And I think that's the best description I can say for the time that we're referring to is these DJs had a passion for the music. They had relationships with the singers. It just was a very magical time. I mean, I don't I don't wish it was 1985 again, but I do miss that community. And I still think it's out there. I just think it's a different way to get it now. I agree. Completely agree. And my final DJ that I think was important is John DeBella. Yes, I would agree. And he's retiring. His last yeah. day is going to be uh, June 30th. After 40 years in the music business, to me, though, John DeBella, and it's not a criticism. He, you know, he became famous in Philadelphia as part of MMR's Morning Zoo, along with Mark the Shark Trucker. He was number one in the morning ratings through most of the 1980s and was a popular figure in Philadelphia until he was taken over by the Howard Stern Show. And I do remember 
from probably like 83 to again, like 1986. He had the Gonzo Shirt Fridays. He did the DeBella DeBall. You would turn on every Friday. I used to work at a job where all the guys on the dock wore the Hawaiian shirt. You know, Fridays, they, and it's, again, I think about these guys that I, I mean, it's a lifetime ago, but people had radio on, you You were on yes. the ship docks at our, re- you remember Andre? He had yeah, a radio on. Yeah, people had, people had uh, radios, people had Walkman. Yeah. Um, so I, I do remember that. And, and it's funny because a guy like John DeBella, people were just as interested to hear the songs as they were to hear him speak about the songs. Like that was part of the experience of, of listening to MMR. John had a passion for the music. I do think that his entertainment was, I found him a little crude at times. And I do think as Howard Stern went on, because what had yeah, happened was- Howard Stern changed the, the marketplace. Yeah, he changed everything. Because I do remember right around 86, 87, I would turn on YSP and I was like, who's this guy? But what happened was, is Howard Stern literally came to Philadelphia and had a funeral because John DeBella got fired, I think, from MMR. And I remember Howard Stern coming to town, had a whole funeral procession downtown in Philadelphia. Yeah, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. But that that is you're making a really powerful statement. But at the time, it how can I say this? I, I think meanness was part of that generation, right. that, that competitive I can do better than you. I'm making more than you. I think it was that that specific baby boomer that was in a very specific era that was very competitive, very, I don't want to say nasty, but it was almost a bullying, but that's how those people communicated. Agreed. Agreed. It was a different world. It was a different environment. And I think this is why you have these people losing their minds right now, because the world is moving yes. to, at least there, there are forces in our culture that's trying to move the world to a, a, a gentler place. John DeBella, as we said, is retiring, but he did come back and he's been back on for at least 20 years now. And again, he kind of got past that whole Howard Stern craziness. He had a lot of personal tragedies. His wife in 1992 uh, did die in his house in Bryn Mawr. She went on the Howard Stern show as Dial-A-Date. And I think after she passed away, uh, John DeBella has spoken publicly that Howard Stern called him and apologized and said, you were a tougher man. I would have never taken what I did to you. And I think that really restarted John DeBella back in the mute. Like we kind of got past the Howard Stern craze. And at this point in 92, you know, getting into the mid 90s, a lot of these guys were in their early 40s. So some of that immaturity just passed. Yeah. And it went back to which all of this should always be about. And it went back to the music. Honestly, I, I mean, and maybe I'm just cut from a different cloth. I think by the time I was in my mid 20s, uh, I couldn't listen to Howard Stern anymore because it was it was clearly obvious what he was doing. He was pandering oh. to the lowest, com- the lowest common denominator of sort of white male instincts. I stopped listening to him with all the agreed. I think he is kind of. He knew what he was doing, too. He knew what he was doing. He was basically pushing the envelope. And listen, you can make the argument from like a, a, a much more sort of erudite uh, political perspective and say, you know, it's because of, of people like Howard Stern that pushed the envelope, Lenny Bruce, uh, you know, that type of thing, you know, Richard Pryor. And I can understand it for its broader um, political significance. But Howard Stern also hurt people with his words. And he savored in his meanness. 
he's kind of like, you know, the world is a better... I think Howard Stern knows what he did, and I think he regrets what he did, and I think that's one of the reasons why he spent so many years in therapy, and he's been honest about the fact that he's dealing with anger and pain, and I think that anger and pain came out on the air, and he hurt a lot of people uh, for the satisfaction of others, uh, whether it's Rush Limbaugh. There was a generation in the, you know, emerging out of the 1980s into the 1990s and the 2000s of these older baby boomer men, white men, who savored, whose entire raison d'etre was meanness and hurtfulness and ostracizing. You know, they basically made careers, very, very, very profitable careers out of denigrating people who were not either white men or people that were immigrants or poor or, you know, immig- you know, whatever it was. And I think it's fair to say that both of them can be, they can be examined within the context of their times, but they can also be criticized within the context of their times. I stopped listening. They were for a very specific artist or group audience. And audience, I, was, yeah. I wasn't that audience anymore. And even at the time, like I did listen to Debella, but there was that, there was that misogyny that by the mid 1980s, I was kind of growing tired of too. Yeah, it just, I don't know. I, I think i think there's a there's a lid for every pot out there, uh, but but that sound, that kind of speech, law, you know, at, at some point you're like, do these guys really mean it? And after a while, you, you it's hard to say that they didn't. And, and so it just lost its appeal to me. But for a brief time, in spite of the misogyny and bad behavior, they were important in terms of the career building of many artists and also sustaining their careers after they peak, they come back into Philadelphia, especially John DeBella. I'm gonna he's been on the radio the longest. Right. Go visit, check in. And granted, they were probably promoting a new album that they probably knew weren't gonna sell. People do wanna hear Billy Joel's Piano Man, Fleetwood Max rumors. But they kind of kept that genre going into a whole other decade longer than most likely they would have. Yeah, in in some ways, the artists were now doing the DJs a favor. Exactly. Because the artists were so much bigger and so much more more popular that to come into the studio and sit with the John DeBella, but you're doing John DeBella a solid. But they they owed it to him because he did build up their their career. I mean, it was kind of, again, that sense of community. And And, I do... And and the idea of just, you know, uh, the experience coming full circle. But And I do think that Philadelphia, maybe for a good 30 years, did play an important role. And the DJs, I did think, deserved a a whole podcast. Because at least from my experience, they were very important in terms of getting the message out there. Completely agree. And I will just say quickly or briefly, Miss Patty Jackson, honorable mention. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. I didn't I I didn't bring the ladies in and I should have but I I wanted to really talk about the high level exposure. I could do a whole other hour on the on Patty Jackson, Helen Light, and this wasn't sexist on my part. I just wanted no, to it was an industry driven by men or yeah. you know, I mean the idea of like female radio personalities being the prominent figures that's a relatively recent phenomenon. But yeah, if you, if you, you know, an objective assessment of the history of radio personalities in the city of Philadelphia, it was a male dominated industry. But it was an important one. I'm glad we went over it today. Agreed. Who's your sponsor, Marie? I'm glad you asked. Happy third anniversary to the shop on Market Street. 
Yay! Three years. Where has the time gone? 1314 East Market Street, Westchester, PA. The shop on Market Street was the daily local reader's best barber shop in Chester County. Is an authentic spaces barber shop providing haircuts and styling for men and children. Owned and operated by long-term Westchester barbers Ashley White, woohoo, and Christina Hughes. Book an appointment today and find out why from kids to grandpops, college students to hipsters, landscapers to lawyers and everyone in between. Are you in between, Nick? Uh, something like that. Whether you've got long hair, short hair, barely any hair at all, they cut and style the way you want. Girl, barbers rule. And I say amen. Amen, sister. Please follow them on Instagram. Also, you can go to their website. But if you do have an Instagram page, please follow them because you can do all of your booking, know every appointment, what they have to offer. They have, I think, probably the best Instagram page for any local business in the area. Nick, are you making your appointment for your 4th of July haircut? I have to. I am about to go to Fabulous Jamaica. Are we taking a break next week? No, no, we're still recording. We're going to do another session on location. Now you're just showing off. I am. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. Please make sure to follow us on any podcast platform, whether it be Apple, Spotify, and also please follow us on Instagram at The White Bikini. And thank you for joining us today. Happy 4th of July, everyone. I want to tell you, baby. The changes I've been going through Missing you, missing you oh, Till you come back to me I don't know what I'm gonna do No, 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 no
Say, ooh. 